so blessed as uh, we tuned in to the web stream over the past two uh, Sundays, and we're so blessed by the ministry of Pastor Terry and Pastor Bob. They always bring a good word, and uh, we appreciate those of you who supported the services during those uh, two weeks. But this morning, we're returning to uh, our sermon series on the Upside Down Kingdom, which is a, a study in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Constitution and Bylaws of the Kingdom. <clears throat> we live on this earth, but we belong to another kingdom. So we need to know how to govern our lives, and Jesus teaches us in these three important chapters, Matthew 5 through 7. This morning, I'm going to be speaking to you on the theme of wrong paradigms. Wrong paradigms, and I'll explain that in a moment. Our text is Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. <clears throat> Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means, strong words, by no means enter the kingdom of God. May the Lord add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. As I was praying over this text and preparing the message this morning, my attention was arrested by the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth. Do not think. And as I paused and pondered those words, I realized that oftentimes we as Christians have a wrong way of seeing things. We have a paradigm that is really not according to the Word of God. And the insinuation of Jesus in these words is, in the ears of his audience, wake up because you are not thinking clearly and your thinking needs to change. Now, we know the, that familiar passage of scripture that says, as a man thinketh, so is he. But have we really pondered the profundity of all that that means? We can tell what kind of person we are by evaluating the thoughts that we think. And the scripture also says, guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your thoughts with all diligence for out of those things are the issues of life. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks because of the thoughts that precipitated those words that were spoken. And those are the things that really we believe. Those are the things that we embrace. 
We create our worldview and how we respond to life, how we respond to God by the thoughts that we think. And wrong paradigms in our mind will lead us to wrong conclusions. If our thinking does not align with the word of God, we've got a malady called stinking thinking and it has really no place in the life of kingdom Christians because we've been called to live on a different level. We've been called to live on a different plane. Set your affection on things above. We are in this world. We are not of this world. So this morning, and I know I'm just deviating a bit from what the message is really all about this morning, but I, I just felt so strongly in my heart that all of us need to challenge ourselves today and say, Holy Spirit, if there is some kind of wrong paradigm in my life, Put your finger on it today. Let me hear the voice of the Spirit that says, do not think. Don't think that you can serve two masters. So many Christians believe that with all of their heart. Because they do all the Christian things, but then they live the kind of life that they want to live that is not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't think that you could love the Lord and love the world at the same time because the scripture is clear. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't have the kind of paradigm that causes you to believe that you can have and enjoy a blessed life by just going through religious routine without making a full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Or on the other hand, you may be embracing those paradigms that are based on ungodly beliefs that then rule our minds, hearts, and behaviors. They are equally erroneous and fallacious and do great damage to us as kingdom Christians. Some of you bought into the lie of the enemy. Why do I waste my time praying? God doesn't answer my prayers. Well, that is a clear, in opposition to what the Word of God says, that when we pray, He hears and He answers our prayers. Don't have this ungodly belief that I walk in condemnation because I keep remembering my past sins. That's a clear violation of what God's word says. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And when we confess our sins, he forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And there is no fishing in God's sea of forgetfulness. It's the lie of the enemy, and we embrace these paradigms that then govern how we respond to God. Oh, we, we, I can't come to God. God says, you come boldly to the throne of grace. You're not coming on your own merits. You're coming on the blood, the blood that was provided that brought us salvation and brings us into God's favor. Don't embrace the paradigm, God doesn't love me or care for me, because if he did, he would not allow me to be going through this hard place. 
Where is that in the Bible? And how many people really, really believe that? God must not love me. God must not be happy with me. I'm going through this horrible trial. This happened or that happened. What did Peter say? Think it not strange. Why are you so surprised when things difficult, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. God is using those trials and those tests to, to, to mold us and to shape us and to conform us into the image of his son. So we need to embrace them with joy and thank God that God, I'm not going through this alone. You're with me. You're holding my hand. You're seeing me through. Your grace is sufficient. We need to change our paradigm. We need to break off with those alliances that we make with the world, those reasons that cause us to feel the loss or the lack of God's favor and blessing. We need to change our paradigm because religion is worthless without a relationship with God. You can come to this church every single time. The doors are open, but if you've not opened up your heart to God and you're not relating with Him in a personal way on a daily basis, even, yes, a moment-by-moment, moment basis. For does not the scripture say pray without ceasing? You know what that's saying? You need to grow in a communion with God, in a fellowship with God, even when you're in your workplace, even with whatever you're doing, there's a subconsciousness that you're walking in that God is my Savior, and the Spirit of God is dwelling in me and bearing witness with my spirit that I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God, and He is my Lord. We need to change our mind because God's gifts are never earned by doing good work, works. They are free gifts of his grace. And so as we look at our text this morning, we clearly see that Jesus is dealing with some wrong paradigms. Jesus is dealing with some erroneous mindsets of the religious Jews of his day. How were they labeling Jesus? They had some thoughts about Jesus that were so off base, that were so wrong. They saw him as a heretic. They saw him as a blasphemer because in their minds, they were, Jesus did not adhere to the Mosaic law as strictly as he should have. After all, if he did, he would have no time for sinners. He would soil and besmirch his character by communicating with sinners. They accused Jesus from not being holy because he did not follow the letter of the law as they believed that he should. They did not understand that holiness is a matter of the heart. And so Jesus saw that it was so important that he lay a foundation in showing them that this new kingdom that he came to usher in, that he came to establish, was not in any way, shape, or form contrary to the sacred scriptures that they embraced, that they said they revered and honored. Well, the difference, as we've already mentioned, they followed the letter of the law, but Jesus' heart was to follow the spirit of what God intended by giving that law. And his heart was to love God and to serve God. And that's why Jesus said that all the law is summed up in these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, 
You don't have to worry about, did I check off this bump, check off that bump? That's living in legalism. We've been born into God's grace. He receives us. He accepts us. But he desires to know that we are people who have hearts that are postured toward him with all of our heart. We've set not just a glance on Jesus, but he is the focus of our gaze. We've galvanized our attention on the Son of the living God. We live every moment of every day to love him, to please him, to serve him. And in doing so, we truly fulfill the law of God. But he saw that there were these wrong paradigms and these wrong mindsets. And what the religious thinkers and the religious people who stood behind pulpits and what they preached, so he had to set the record straight. And we see he does that in verse 17 and 18. Do not think. Not even for a moment, don't you dare think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Now when he says the law or the prophets, we know he's referring to all of the Old Testament scripture, which the Jewish people knew as the Tanakh. You ever heard that expression, anyone, the Tanakh? Some of us. That is a reference to all of the Old Testament scripture and... The, uh, the Jewish religious leaders divided that into three main sections. The first section was the Torah, which literally means instruction or law. And we know that's the first five books written by Moses. That's the law of God. That's what the Jewish people revered. As well as secondly, what the Jewish people called the Nevi'im. And forgive me if I'm not pronouncing these words correctly, but they were the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, everything that the prophets spoke were the Nevi'im. And then thirdly, the Ketuvim, which are all the other books of the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, etc., etc. So what does Jesus say concerning these scriptures? What was his view? The Jewish leaders thought Jesus was just being negligent of the word of God. Jesus was just taking a very apathetic or complacent attitude toward the word of God. But what does Jesus say in verse 18? For assuredly, that's what we read in the New King James Bible. The King James Version that many of us grew up with are this, is this familiar phrase that we've heard Jesus say so many times. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Did you know that those words verily, verily, are translated amen. Now I know that that jolts some of us because amen, that's what we say at the end of our prayer. And we know what amen means. Some of us think it's the sign off. It's not really the sign off. Amen means so be it. This is the truth. I embrace the truth. I have come into complete agreement with the truth. But you notice in this verse, Jesus doesn't conclude his statement with verily, verily, or with the amen, amen. He begins it with verily, verily, I say unto you. And that not only implies that what Jesus is saying is true. It not only implies that he's aware of these truths. But because Jesus has the authority to say what he is saying, the revelation is this. 
that he is the one who originated that truth. And so therefore, he can authoritatively declare, this is the truth, because I am the word, and I am truth. Amen and amen. So verse 18, for assuredly, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Again, flying in the face of what the Jewish aristocracy felt about Jesus and his view toward the word of God. These two little known words that he uses to make his point, that not one jot, what is a jot? It's really the anglicized version of the ninth and the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Who knows what that is? It's Yoda, from which we get the word iota, which means, you know, just the very smallest part. And in the Hebrew alphabet, that letter just looks like an apostrophe. But it's translated into English, as I said, iota, and that is the meaning of it. So Jesus is saying, not even an iota of the scripture will ever pass until all is fulfilled. Then he says, not a jot or even a tittle. Now a tittle is even smaller. A tittle is just a little protrusion. You know, certain languages have cedillas, Spanish language, just just that tiny little mark that I understand changes the pronunciation of words that's no bigger than a comma. Jesus is emphasizing and he's declaring that even the smallest detail of his word will outlast this heaven and earth because they're both passing away. Can we just pause there for one second? When was the last time you thought about that God has said, has said in his word that the heaven and the earth is going to pass away. So everything that you treasure, everything that you have in your safety deposit box at the bank, everything that you have locked away that is so valuable to, to you, the word of God says it's going to melt with fervent heat because he's creating a whole new earth and what really blows my mind is a whole new heaven. The universe. You know, if, if God just spoke the universe into existence in Genesis 1, what makes us think it would be difficult for him to just dissolve all of that and recreate a whole new universe? He's God. We cannot comprehend his magnitude, his greatness, his glory. We make him so small. But in the context of what we're looking at this morning, I just want to encourage you to know that Jesus said heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word shall never pass away. What does that say to me today? That says to me, that word that I'm clinging on to, that word that has not yet been fulfilled, it will be fulfilled because God is not a man that he should lie. His word is true. We embrace that word by faith because if God said it, that settles it. 
and that is enough for me. I know it takes faith, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, we can't be Christians. Without faith, we can't be children of God. And if we begin in faith, do we all of a sudden start rationalizing with our natural mind? Well, God hasn't answered this prayer in 20 years. I guess he's never going to answer it. You need to put away your rational mind and start looking at what God says. And how many times in the word he proved himself, even after decades. What about all the promises that were made in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah? And then after Malachi, what was that, 300 years of silence? But then in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the earth. And Jesus said, I'm coming again. And I know we're living in these last days where there are scoffers who are saying, where's the promise of his coming? And I know when I was a, a tiny tot in Sunday school, they'd say, Jesus is coming soon. Look what just happened. Israel became a nation. And so we expected that Jesus was going to come in that year or whatever. And here all these years later, he still hasn't come. But the word of God says, he that says he will come, shall come, and will not delay. His word and his promises are true. We need to cling to those words and cling to those promises. You can be sure that even the tiniest detail of the word of God can ever be lost. Nor should they ever be tampered with. In Deuteronomy, we read these words, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And yet, what, what, what is the day and age in which we're living today when Christians feel that they have the prerogative to cherry-pick the word of God? Well, I don't like what that has to say, so I'll just ignore that. But I like that. I like those promises that make me feel good, that bless me, that give me a thrill and a chill, but those things that just, through many afflictions, you must enter into the kingdom of God, well, leave that one alone. And then there are these religious leaders in church denominations that just absolutely and completely change the word of God. God didn't say that was a sin. That's something we need to accept. That's something we need to embrace. And that is even something that we need to celebrate. I think I mentioned to you that I was just stunned a few weeks ago when I, I was looking at something that some religious article said, click on this and read about what's happening in this church. And I saw a transsexual, transvestite parading down the aisle and everyone was clapping their hands. That's in a Christian church. What have we done to the word of God? Well, I've gotten off track. Forgive me there. Back to verse 18. The Amplified Version summarizes verse so well. For I assure you and most solemnly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen will pass from the law until all which it foreshadows are accomplished. And the key phrase there is which it foreshadows. Understand that the word of God from the very beginning to its end is what? It's God's revelation of his son. 
Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. Do you recall what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5? You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But what do the Scriptures do? They point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive life. Jesus is saying, I'm the grand subject of the scriptures. I'm the focus of the holy writ of the Old Testament. You say that you search them, you meditate on them, you read them, you reread them. Did you, you ever see the, the religious Jews, how they are in their, I forget what they call those places of learning, but they are there pouring over the scriptures, pouring over the Old Testament rocking back and forth. What are they searching? They're searching for this little law. Are we keeping this little law? Are we, are we obeying what God said to Moses here? While all at the time that they are reading is declaring that a Messiah is to come, and yet their eyes cannot see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets foretold would come to take place. And as we read the word, Christian friends, we need to open up our hearts and say, Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, reveal Jesus to me. Now further in that chapter of John, Jesus chided the religious leaders. And he said this, it is an I who accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. He wrote about me, Jesus said, and yet all you're saying is do this, but don't do that. And then you remember when Jesus met with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he walked with them. They were so despondent because of Jesus having been crucified. And we read in Luke 24 these words. Because Jesus said, why are you so down? And they said, are you a stranger? Don't, don't you know what's going on in Jerusalem? And so Jesus, the scripture says, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning what? Himself. You can be, you can have your PhD in the word of God, in the Bible. But if you haven't found Jesus, all you have is some intellectual prowess. Jesus is the focus of the word of God. In every book, he is the theme. And it's for us to search it out and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus. And as Jesus is revealed to us, we grow in his likeness. Now quickly, as I try to wrap this up this morning, we want to look at the three major areas of the Torah that we've, we, we read about. We, when you read the Old Testament, you're reading about, first of all, ceremonial laws, especially in the first five books, and you read about dietary laws, and then thirdly, you read about moral laws. And in the first five books, we read about all of these rules and regulations, especially when you get into Leviticus. Wow, I could just blow your minds. And God says, Israel, you need, you need to flesh all these things out. This is how you need to live. 
God gave them directives in just about everything, even how they were to dress, even how they were to cut their hair. Did you know this verse was in the Bible in Leviticus 19 and 27? You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. Now, if you know Hasidic Jews, they still have those curls. They have them there because they want to show they are being faithful to Leviticus 19, 27. But why did God say that they should not do those things? Because of the pagans all around them who shave those portions of their head and their beard so that they can engage in these pagan ritual practices. And God says, uh-uh, you are my children and I want you to be distinguished above all the other people, both in your appearance and also in your practice. And so we read in Exodus 19, the Lord called to Moses from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. If you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth. And you, Israel, will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Do we, do we understand what God's intention was? He wanted a people that was just called out, singled out, specifically for him. He had a jealous love for them. And he called them to be separate. And so the word of God tells us, as the apostle repeats the same words from the Old Testament, and says, therefore the word says, come out from among them and be separate. And I want to know today, and I want to ask myself, and we all need to ask ourselves, how have we separated ourselves? How have we distinguished ourselves that we are exclusively gods and we're not of this world? I know I have to confess, I grew up in a church where we thought it was all about how you looked. And so women didn't wear makeup, they didn't wear jewelry, and I guess most people thought, well, those are the oddballs. <laughs> I know, we were called the holy rollers. We looked different, and, you know, being Italian and we weren't Catholic, that was just the worst sin in the world. How, how can you be Italian and not Catholic? How are we distinguishing ourselves? How are we separate from the world? Do we do the things that they do and think nothing of it? Do we say the things that they say because there's no conviction of sin in their hearts? Do we watch the things that they watch because there's no conviction in their hearts? Do we go to the places that they go because there's no conviction in their hearts? And yet, we've just compromised. You see, the enemy has a way of subtly suggesting, oh, you, you can do this. And so we crack the door open. Now, I know that I probably shouldn't say this, but we know the scripture says to, Paul said to Timothy, use a little wine for your stomach's sake. So some Christians take that as license. I know I grew up with no alcohol. That was just forbidden for Christians, and I appreciate being raised with that. Because there are people who felt, well, I could drink a little bit of alcohol. And guess what? They've opened the door to Satan, and they've become alcoholics. 
So we need to be careful. I want to sin for one person, may not be sin for another. We all need to stand before God with hearts that are open and say, God, is this dishonoring or displeasing to you? And if it's, if it's not of faith, the Bible says, then to you it is sin. But if it's not a sin for me, and if I do it and it causes my brother to stumble, the scripture says I better not do it. Because it's more important that I don't abuse my liberty in Christ than to make a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Secondly, the dietary laws, and I just briefly mentioned this. God had them there to keep his people healthy, but we know they're no longer binding. Thank God. Because if they were, guess what? No more bacon, no more barbecued pulled pork, no more ham sandwiches. Seafood lovers, you would be restricted to fish with fins and tails. That means no more shrimp, no more lobsters, no more crabs, no more oysters. We can't live without some of that stuff. So aren't we thankful today that we are not under the law? That's why Paul said in Colossians 2, so that no one judge you in food or in drink. That's the dietary laws. Or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. They are the ceremonial laws. They're a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The reality is in Christ. So what's he saying? If what you believe in, if what you embrace, if what you practice, because you feel it's an important part of your faith system, if it's not about Jesus, then it's just legalism. And it's in vain. So may God help us that whatsoever we do, in word or deed, whatever we drink or eat, we do as unto the Lord and to bring honor and glory to Jesus. And so Jesus, we're so thankful because of the new covenant that the ceremonial law and the dietary laws are no longer binding. And I know that some people still believe in doing certain parts of those things, and that's fine. But according to the word of God, we are not under law anymore to, to adhere and embrace those things. It's just a matter of our conscience and what God is telling us how to live. But when it comes to God's moral laws, they are still binding and they're still critically important. And they're important because, first of all, the law explains what sin is. Did you know, apart from the law, we would not know what sin is. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had said, you must not covet. So the law explains what sin is, but it also exposes our sinful condition. We read in the scripture that when we open the word and the Holy Spirit prompts something to us, ah, Something's not right here. See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't bring condemnation. It brings conviction so that we can acknowledge what's wrong in our life and make the necessary adjustments so that we can no longer grieve the heart of God but to please Him. But even though it exposes our sinful condition, the laws can never heal us. And that's the problem. You know, when you're sick, what do you do? You go for the thermometer. Do I have fever? 
because I have a fever that must tell me something is wrong. But does that thermometer have the power to heal you and make you feel better? No, it does not. So neither does the law have the power to heal us and make us better. The law is merely a skullmaster that says, you need Jesus. So we, we see what sin is. We see the awfulness of it. We see what it's done in our lives. It shows us we need a Savior. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 3, before the way of faith, Christ was available to us, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. How did we get fixed? We got fixed when we came to Jesus. And I'm so thankful to know today that it wasn't a rule book that fixed us. I know some people try to go by the rule book, but it never can, it never will. In fact, did you know if you try to follow the letter of the law, it will drive you into deeper sin? That's a fact and that is a reality. There are 600 laws that the Jewish people believe are in the, the word of God that we need to abide by. Can't do it. We need a savior. We need Jesus to come in and do what God's word says. Take out our stony heart and give us a heart of flesh. Give us a heart that is sensitive to his voice. Give us a heart that is filled with his love. Give us a heart that embraces the reality of who he is. Because if you say, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to go work in the soup kitchen. I'm going to go to church every time the doors are open. I'm going to start tithing. I'm, I'm going to start doing this and I'm, I'm going to start doing that. No, your best intentions will cause you to fall flat on your face. The reality is the remedy, the remedy is only the Lord Jesus. And I close with this scripture. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the great exchange. Are you thankful for the great exchange this morning? He took our sin. He placed his righteousness in us. He gave us a heart that was postured toward him with a desire to love him and serve him. You know, nobody has to beat you over the head and say, hey, you call yourself a Christian? Why are you watching those dirty movies? No, no, no. You need to examine your heart. It's in the wrong place if those are the things that you're doing. If you're, you're hating and you're bitter and you're unforgiving, God gives us a new heart. We're not perfect. We're far from perfect. We falter, we fail. But His grace, His grace is abundant upon our lives. His blood is efficacious to the cleansing away of all of our sin. And this morning as we come to the communion table, Let's be grateful. Let's be thankful that Jesus paid the price for our salvation. And may he deliver us from every wrong paradigm that is keeping us from fulfilling our destiny and from receiving all the fullness of the blessing that God has for each and every one of us. Amen. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, we just want to take a moment as... We sing or meditate upon the words of this song at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. 
Scripture says, wherefore, when you come together to receive this communion, you examine yourself. So as we come to the cross, can we just examine our hearts this morning as we take a moment, as we sing this song together before we partake? Before we do, are there any, is there anyone in the church that did not receive their cup? Please hold your hand up high. Yeah, several ushers, please. Please keep your hand up. And as they're doing that, you can turn that song on and begin to focus on the cross. 